Welcome to the seventh session in an eight-part introduction to Indigenous Relations in BC. In this one, I stop pretending to be factual and steer right into opinion. Here's a topic I'm often asked about, Indigenous politics and power. I need to be really clear. No two Indigenous communities in BC are the same. Generalizing doesn't work. But having said that, you need to have some technical idea about how decisions are made in an Indigenous government. Under the Federal Indian Act, legal agreements need to be approved by chief and council and formalized in a document called a Band Council Resolution. Councils may take significant decisions to the community in open meetings. But know that the real social and political power may reside with hereditary chiefs, not the elected chiefs. The role of hereditary chief is said to be passed down through the generations. However, I understand that in some communities, the title of hereditary chief can be given to individuals to recognize their contributions and wisdom. But the main point I want to make is that one of the original strategies of the Indian Act was to undermine the power of the hereditary chief by installing and empowering elected chiefs and councils that would function under the control of the Act. A side note, the word chief is from Middle English and Old French and is entrenched in the Federal Indian Act. It's not an indigenous word. The appropriate word for leader depends on the indigenous language and dialect being spoken. I've used chief as a sign of respect and affection for my indigenous colleagues, but the title, like so much other stuff, is something imposed on indigenous peoples by colonists. That said, here are some observations about how First Nations communities align politically. Many individual First Nations communities have come together in political alliances, usually based on historical associations, often for treaty purposes. For example, several First Nations communities in Southeast BC, well, individual Indian bands under the Federal Indian Act, come together as a Tanaka nation when dealing with other governments. And that's important because the courts have indicated that Aboriginal rights, including title, exist at a collective or nation level, not at the individual level. Arguably, there's no single organization that represents all First Nations on all matters, which is a challenge for broader provincial consultation on procedures, policies, and legislation. However, there are three recognized and respected organizations with different roles and responsibilities in BC and they do come together in a limited way. The Union of BC Indian Chiefs was formed in 1969. Why 1969, you might ask? Part of the answer is that it was a year that Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau and his Minister of Indian Affairs, Jean Chrétien, put out a white paper officially called The Statement of Government on Indian Policy. The proposal was to abolish the Indian Act and all existing treaties within Canada. And after much criticism and activism, the white paper was withdrawn in 1970. If you've listened to the earlier sessions in this series, you might be thinking, yay, no federal Indian Act. After all, its goal was to assimilate Indians and erase their cultures. But the white paper was criticized for being 
another form of assimilation. It proposed that Indian status would be eliminated. First Nations peoples would be incorporated into provincial government responsibility as equal Canadian citizens. Reserve status would be removed, and private property laws would be imposed on Indigenous communities. Any special programs or considerations that had been set up under previous legislation would end, as they were seen by the government as separating Indian peoples from Canadian citizens. So, it was controversial, to say the least. And as I understand it, and I'm very happy to be corrected, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs is opposed to the current treaty process for related reasons. The First Nations Summit was formed in 1992 to represent First Nations participating in the newly formed BC treaty process. I talked a bit about that in a previous session, so I won't go into it now. The third, the BC Assembly of First Nations, is affiliated with the National Assembly of First Nations. To quote its website, Its representation is inclusive and extends to First Nations currently engaged in the treaty process, those who have signed modern treaties, and those who fall under historic treaty agreements. Like the first two, it seeks to advance the rights and interests of First Nations peoples in BC. Given the national affiliation, though, I think it's generally thought of as being more focused on federal rather than provincial issues. However, in 2005, with the signing of the Leadership Accord, the First Nations Leadership Council was formed. It includes representation from all three groups and was created somewhat reluctantly, I'm told, in response to a request from then-Premier Gordon Campbell for a single First Nations point of contact for the provincial government. But to be clear, the members of the Leadership Council respect the varying perspectives and mandates of their counterparts. And in my experience, consensus is often only achieved on high-level issues of importance to all First Nations in BC. If that sounds fragmented, well, yeah, it can be. After I left government, I presented to the First Nations Leadership Council on behalf of a client. It, it was like my days of presenting to the BC cabinet, except that there was no single leader, no premier, to focus discussion and provide a single unified viewpoint. It's important to note that the Leadership Council does not have the authority to make commitments on behalf of individual First Nations communities. The members of the council are very clear about that. So, Where can the provincial government go to consult in detail on policies, procedures, or legislation? In some cases, there are committees mandated by the First Nation Leadership Council. There are ones for health and forestry. In other cases, the provincial government has to reach out to the individual First Nations communities or leaders that might be most affected by an initiative. That's a challenge for all parties, especially the prominent Indigenous leaders that are often asked to deal with an overwhelming number of issues. Well, that leads to the last session in this series, my personal reflections on working with Indigenous peoples in BC. It swings wildly between being practical and super preachy. By now, you're expecting nothing less. I'm still Peter Walters. Thank you for listening.